0: The fact that Victorians stuck together, the fact that Victorians, through kindness and
1: compassion, through connection and care, looked out for each other, went and got vaccinated because vaccines work. Because as a community, we were not, as some would say, divided. We were instead
0: united in our faith in science and in our faith and care for and in each other. Hello oh, and welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, Victoria goes to the polls. Victoria has had a difficult couple of years, so it seems especially cruel to make its citizens vote in not one, but two elections in the same year. But the vagaries of the federal and state election cycles meant that a state election fell only a few months after the federal election. To discuss the state election and the various personalities and parties that contested it, we were joined by our lead Senate candidate and newly minted communications officer for Victoria, Leonie Green. Leonie, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. So, Leonie, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast and being our person on the ground in Victoria, especially since Steve and I don't live in Victoria, and the sort of experience of people outside of Victoria watching the election, I think, is very, very different to what you guys experienced on the ground in Victoria so before we get into what appears to be Downslide 2.0 and all of the interesting stuff that happened around what was, I think, a very strange election, let's just rip the Band-Aid off on, on something that our, our listeners are probably curious about, which is the fact that the Australian Democrats did not contest the Victorian election, despite our best efforts. So do you want to just take us through the the particular journey that your the, the Victorian division went on, literally as we came out of the federal election in May?
2: Yeah, so we, I'd love to be talking about the experience of the Australian Democrats in Victoria in the election, but no, we're not talking about that because we didn't get across the line. And it was an interesting experience and insight into what goes on at the VEC, which is a little bit different to the AEC. So as many of our listeners may know, um, we went through uh, the experience of having to re-register again with the AEC, and they, from my understanding, did a bit of uh, an audit on the members that we put through. The VEC took a very different approach. So the VEC required uh, 500 members um, or more from each register party, and that was okay. We had more than 500 members, but they sent snail mail to our 500 plus members and required a snail mail reply from 500 members in order to register. So that in and of itself in 2022 really does kind of, there's no visual for this clearly, but my brain is kind of exploding with (laughs) the fact that we are relying on snail mail for that process for the start as a start point, and that we are not doing an audit check process. We're actually requiring requiring all 500 or at least 500 members to respond via snail mail. And we know certainly from um, a number of our members who uh, were supposed to have received something in the mail that they did not actually receive anything in the mail. So needless to say, uh, we will be taking that further with the BEC and talking to them about the process because One of the things that in my mind the Australian Democrats have always stood for and we continue to stand for is improving our democratic democratic processes and improving our democracy. And there are real improvements needed in Victoria in terms of how uh, minor parties get registered and how minor parties participate in the democratic process we could do a whole other conversation about um, funding um, and uh, raising of funds for minor parties or for parties who are not currently in the parliament, which is um, another real challenge in Victoria as well. And, And none of this is around wholesale change that's needed necessarily either. It's actually just continuous improvement and tweaks and we need to be able to, as a state, really lean into those conversations between elections rather than have those conversations only every four years and in the last five minutes when it's all too late to actually do anything about it. So one of the upsides in my mind (laughs) to not getting across the line is that it gives us a really important platform, I think, to talk about some of the improvements that we want to see and the improvements that we want to see well ahead of uh, the next election in Victoria. Um, So we will continue to advocate on that front and we will continue to um, hopefully grow our member base over that time as well so that if we somehow seemingly still need 500 people to respond to a snail mail letter and let's hope in four years time that is certainly not the case or in even in six months time when we do it again at at some point that we actually have a a groundswell of support around how we do that and getting it done that's the state of affairs on that front
0: It was very curious to me watching you guys go through that because just in case our listeners aren't aware, so we are registered federally and we can contest federal elections, but to contest a state election, we actually have to re-register in the jurisdiction that we want to contest the election in. So WA, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, even the two territories, have their own registration processes to register as a political party, and their own requirements and thresholds and things. And so, in theory, to, to for a party to register to contest an election in any state or territory, you have to go through about seven or eight different processes to be able to do it. Which is, and, and none of them are none of them are the same. Which is bizarre. And it, and it seemed like the Victorian process is kind of designed to ensure that minor parties will either struggle to register or fail to register. Because you said to rely on snail mail in 2022, particularly with the privations that Australia Post has been through, and particularly coming out of a pandemic, seemed like, you know, and again, that's not the VEC's fault. That's the rules that they have to enforce, that, that they don't set the rules. But it seems absolutely crazy in this day and age to have to go through that. So I, I was curious well, I looked up the WA ones and in WA when you submit your application to register as a party you need to then submit those a minimum of 500 of those um, similar forms at the same time so at least you get all your paperwork together you whack it in and you're done and then they go ahead and audit it. So that solves a lot of communication problems that uh, appear to be um, you know rampant in the, in the Victorian process so yeah, so it was super disappointing. And all the efforts that the Victorian division went through, because, we, we, you know, we threw everything at the, the federal election and then as soon as the dust had settled on the federal election, you guys were gearing up to get all your or you know your ducks in a row to then register for the Victorian elections. You just haven't stopped until eventually the VEC sort of came back and said, well, you, you know, you're not going to get registered, so that was sort of disappointing. But just heroic efforts on the part of the of the Victorian division. It was really, it was incredible to see, and the division did so well with huge barriers in front of them to um to get as far as they did. Yeah, hopefully, like you know, the twenty what it will be the twenty twenty six election in Victoria will be will be the one. So there you go. So yeah, if anyone was curious as to why they could not vote for the Australian Democrats in the the election just passed, that's why. Sorry about that. But if you want to help us get riches next time, join the party, donate, volunteer, all that good stuff. I'll have links in the show notes for you. Let's get into the meat of of the episode, I guess, which is the, I'm I'm calling it Downslide 2.0 because there were huge question marks around Labor being returned in Victoria. I mean, I don't think anyone realistically thought that the Liberals in Victoria would actually get up and uh, topple Dan Andrews. But the media certainly didn't seem to think that it would be quite the um, the casual stroll back into power that it turned out to be. Because everyone talked about the downslide in, in 2018, when when you know, the massive margins that Daniel Andrews secured in a number of seats in Victoria, and the, La- the Labor um, Party seems to have retained all of those margins, which is quite extraordinary. So, Take us through it, Leonie. Again, I'm I'm just talking crap because I I'm um, I'm in the independent sovereign nation of Australia and I'm literally from the other side of the country going, Well, what happened over there? So take me through it from your perspective.
2: So I'm I'm so intrigued actually by how it's perceived outside of Victoria as well. And I think it's it's hard to actually get a unsurprisingly a Victorian perspective. So I will give you my perspective and my take on what I've seen but I would start with this concept or notion that it's downside 2.0 because I feel like it's really not and I feel like I feel like that kind of misses some of the real complexity of this result so it could be really interesting to go yep Dan's back in and he's got a majority government and he's off and running again and that is the short story yes he does have a majority and, yes, he's very much off and running again with his team. But there are some nuances within that in different seats that I think actually tell a more interesting story. One of the things that I'm surprised by is the take that the media are having now on the other side. So pre-election, it was hard to get or see any media that was suggesting that Dan was going to uh, get back in with the majority. Certainly not in any comfortable sense at all. And there was concern around what it would look like. I think probably the, oh, I don't know, maybe the the easy position to take was that he might get in but with a minority government. That kind of seemed to be the, you know, he'll get in but it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be skinny. The Libs will take at least another election to get back in. Now, I think it's fairly easy in some ways to say that the Libs have not <laughs> not done particularly well at all and that's heartening in some ways to me in some seats but where they have done well in some seats or where they have come back or they've retained a seat there are some good stories and interesting stories in that as well so That was just on the libs. The Nats are a whole other story again, right? The Nationals are really interesting (laughs) and we have at least seen some press on that. The Nats in Victoria are different. There's a reason why we've not had a Nats leader from Victoria. Um, It would be amazing to see that at some point for the Nats (laughs) because that would be a really telling story for the Nats as a party. But the Nats in Victoria are different. They're really interesting to watch. They are very, very locally focused, and they are more progressive, perhaps, because, you know, they're in Victoria. <laughs> but they have done quite well out of this election. So, you know, we, we've we got a coalition that is in an interesting state in Victoria in terms of what that then means for the power that the Nats perhaps have in that coalition that they previously and perhaps a little bit less, they should hopefully have a lot more at the moment in the way that that's working. Um, similarly, it's really interesting, I think, to see Pasciutto perhaps get back in. I think they're saying he does now have his seat and they're still counting. But he, if he does take the leadership, then I think that will be also a really interesting point in time for the Liberal Party in Victoria if he doesn't. That's also kind of interesting, (laughs) but there's kind of there's signposts there, right? For those who are of our listeners who might be watching what the Liberal Party is doing and wanting to know what that line of sight looks like for them, well, that's a signpost as to where the party is going. And there were look, if I talk on a personal level for a moment, I sit in a seat where our local member for the last four years was a very, very surprise local ALP member. So he knocked out a very popular liberal member 4 years ago and very much a surprise to him I think. <laughs> the ALP at the time. Um, he's done a tremendous job. He's been an, a fantastic local member, a really active local member. Sadly he's not our local member anymore. I had a great chat to him in pre-polls and and he talked about, you know, just the need to go and have a break after having had a uh, pretty full-on four years, unsurprisingly. But the person who was standing instead of him in our seat is a you know, stalwart kind of ALP member, progressive ALP person, as the party is in Victoria. The local candidate for the Liberal Party, however, was not and was the other end of the spectrum. So we had, and this is nothing against the Mormons whatsoever, but we had a, a Mormon member, uh, a Liberal Party member, there is plenty plenty of press on the interesting number of Mormon members within the Liberal Party in Victoria and the control perhaps that they have been able to have over where the Liberal Party has been going and what members are standing and what the Liberal Party is standing for. And that in and of itself is not a problem if that is what the Liberal Party want to do as a party. This is that, again, that kind of point in time of going, well, Really, what is the party actually standing for, and what are they doing? And hence my interest in watching what happens in terms of the leadership there. And and I kind of feel like that there is a really interesting similarity in terms of what's happening for Victoria at a federal level for the Liberal Party and Victoria for the uh, state level Liberal Party, um, because it's pretty much the same kind of lines in terms of where that control is coming from. Independence. I want to talk about independence. So there's been some press to suggest that it really hasn't been that kind of teal wave thing that we had at the federal election and sure it hasn't been a teal wave of all these independents coming in however there have been a number of seats where it is still and it is still actually very close to call or they've lost but they've really only just lost and that to me is that is that is kind of almost like a tilt wave, right? This is the next generation of independents that we are now seeing at a state level. And we are seeing some uh, electorates where there are multiple independents standing, which I think is really interesting in and of itself as well. But we are seeing this same flavour of local, very local candidates, local problems, really strong community connections, and that is the basis of their campaign. And thankfully, and this is again where I get excited about the improvements that we can make in our democracy, thankfully we are starting to see that from the parties in the way that they are then talking and responding. One of my favourite examples of that is actually a Liberal Party candidate, Jess Wilson, who is in Q. so she has taken All over right. from Tim. And she. I think she actually ran a fantastic local campaign, very present, very connected to the community, and really clear local issues that were being advocated for. So it's been really interesting to see that. That, to me, is the improvements that the independents are forcing upon our system.
1: Can I just pick up on that point, Leonie? I've picked up a copy earlier today, hot off the press, of Tim Dunlop's book, Voices of Us, which is the, the independence movement transforming Australian democracy, and it talks about, in particular those voices of independence um, and the success that we saw from them at the federal election. But I just want to read something that struck me today. This is Louise Hislop, who was instrumental in Zali Stegall's campaign in the seat of Warringah. And this is from a meeting that she had ahead of the 2016 election with an independent, one of the the, the early community independence that Warringah put forward to take on Tony Abbott. Um, It was a a guy by the name of James Matheson, and he was one of the hosts of Australian Idol. So personality, but very much steeped in the local community. And Louise was meeting him for the first time, and she said to him, you know you won't win, don't you? And he said, that's okay. And he points his finger up at 12 o'clock, and he said, if we can just turn the dial this much points to 2 o'clock it'll be that much easier for the next person and i think that's that's the message that we need to take out of this result for those independents in victoria they were never in the same fight that we saw at the federal election they were in a new fight they were new groups just starting to get those community engagements happening those voices happening the the same level of support for those local independents, they did really well and the next election is going to be a real eye-opener, I think. And I think that's the the takeaway for me around what you've just been saying for the independents. They did well and although they didn't win, they got really close in a number of really interesting seats and the next election is going to be a real eye-opener.
0: Yeah, I think judging the Victorian independents against the success of the federal independence is unfair because mm-hmm. I, I really I think you, I think that analogy is correct, Steve, in that this is essentially the equivalent of the 2016 election in Warringah for the Victorian ele- uh, Victorian independence, yeah. and you know the 2026 Victorian election might be you know, we might get the Victorian equivalent of a Stegelin or it might just leapfrog that and become the 2022 equivalent, but this is what frustrates me: is that the media dismissed the community federal community independence uh, in the lead up to the federal election and only in the sort of the dying days of the election suddenly it went, oh, hang on, these, these women, like one or two of them might win. And then when most of them won, all of a sudden they've sort of just rewritten history and gone, oh, well, you know. And, and now the narrative seems to be coming out of Victoria, which is, oh, well, they didn't have a Scott Morrison type figure to fight against. Therefore, they weren't successful. And I just think it's garbage. Like, that is, that analysis is wrong. And I think the rise of independence in Victoria will demonstrate that to be profoundly wrong. But yeah, a little bit of trivia for you all. James Matheson was at one time an Australian Democrat. And still very supportive of us. Yeah, he was. Awesome. Um, yeah, he um, he joined the party. I, th- I think he actually left the party to to run as an independent in Warringah. I could that could be a walk of shame. I could be wrong, but he remains very very supportive of us.
1: It's a it's a an interesting path to tread though to go from a party like ours, where even in parliament we would respect a uh, a representative to vote not along party lines, but in a, in a manner that did represent their local electorate. And that's been a position of the party right throughout its history. Once you hit parliament, there is no expectation that we, we, we vote on party lines. Mm. We negotiate on it as a party, but that's to talk through amendments, not to put a, a voting block. So for, for James, I, can, I completely understand where he would go. Actually, what I need to do is represent the the community and so i'll take that step and also at a time when the party was well and truly at a at a nadir so fair enough
0: yeah and i I think at that stage it's one of those curious things about about the independence movement is the whole point of them is to be independent and to be deeply embedded in their community. And I can understand that someone like James Matheson would have struggled to sort of bridge the gap between being part of a political party with the the perceptions and the aura of being even a highly independent and highly democratic political party such as ours because we are an outlier in that respect.
1: Without taking us too far away from the Victorian election, I, I, I will note it was interesting during the federal election the uh, voices of McKellar candidate, Dr. Sophie Scumps, quoting Don Chip and referencing the Australian Democrats as a point of reference for what disgruntled liberals do (laughs) when they're not happy and the idea of integrity in politics as something that can and should be fought for, I, I, I find interesting. So to learn that James... Was uh, a, f- a former Australian Democrat standing in the next electorate over makes makes perfect sense to me.
0: And I think that's why, as a, the, th- the three of us have have found the community independence movement so fascinating and something that I think each of us relates to on some level as as Democrats. It's I, I don't think us as a party are really sort of ideologically or in terms of values and, and morals that far removed from those people, but. The rise of the community independence really is like a backlash against the two-party system, and what has surprised me with both the federal election and the Victorian election uh, is the abs- like the sudden and absolute collapse of one of the legacy parties of our political system. And I mean that this was foreshadowed in the, in the WA election, but. We sort of put that well, I put put that down to it being a, a legacy of the pandemic and Mark McGowan's uh, sort of stewardship of the state through the pandemic and and you know the response of the of Western Australia to that, as opposed to it being an outright rejection of what the Liberal Party stands for. But in hindsight, I can sort of look back and go, well, actually, that, that probably was, uh, you know, the canary in the coal mine and all of this. But you see it first in WA, like in famously reduced the Liberals to two, two seats in the lower house and they're not even the, the official opposition anymore. Then they, they, they were not decimated, but certainly took a heavy hit in the federal election. And the few who remain at the federal level are really not the best and brightest that the Liberal Party could put up. And then that pattern has continued with the um, the Victorian election and the absolute crushing. Because what's fascinating is that it's not so much, as you said, Lernie, it's not so much that Daniel Andrews and the Labor Party had a crushing victory, more so that the, the Liberal Party just absolutely collapsed. And the contrast of the National Party doing quite well in, in comparison has been. It, it's just fascinating watching, you know, in two states now and uh, to a lesser degree at the federal level, the Liberal Party is in a smoking ruin.
2: Can, so can I just pick up on this point then, though, that the independents are in some way pushing against the concept of a two-party system, because I I feel like it's I feel like it's actually more about the Liberal Party than mm-hmm. the two-party system, because if we look about particularly where the independents um, have done well, they have often been in what would have previously been safe Liberal seats. They are often women who are not finding a party that they feel that they can align themselves with where they previously in not in all cases but previously perhaps would have found a home in the liberal party and and I guess this is this is the bit that I I do find really interesting because I think that the result may be that we have a lot more independence in our system across party lines perhaps but at this stage, we haven't got that. Predominantly, we have, we have independents who are really uh, socially progressive independents, but economically conservative for the most part, but economically mm-hmm. conservative independents. And, and that, to me, is the bit that the Liberal Party, I, I don't know what's going on there, but the Liberal Party don't seem to be talking about or, or don't want to talk about because perhaps they're wanting to go down a different route.
1: Well, they're certainly being led and encouraged down that route by conservative media so the conversations the questions the overt support of particular candidates or the withholding of support just as just as much is very much encouraging them to move further away from any kind of central position on any kind of issue and and move further further away from the centre. I hesitate to say to the right because I don't actually think it's the right necessarily in in, in these cases. But they're they're certainly shifting more towards the support of the wealthy. They're certainly um, shifting more towards religious conservatism. They're certainly shifting further away from any kind of gender diversity or inclusivity-type policies, support of the queer community or any of that, that sort of issue they're moving well away from that. On the environment, they're, they're well and truly over with fossil fuels and, and getting further rather than like any kind of environmental response. So like de- depending on how you position it, they're, they're moving in the other direction and they're, they're being encouraged to do so. You made the point right at the beginning, uh, Elena, about You know, the media got it wrong. I'm not convinced that that was an accident or a mistake (laughs) on their part. I think in large part it was a deliberate policy of telling a a story and trying to convey a narrative that was simply false. Mm. And it wasn't news and it wasn't journalism. It was storytelling and it was trying to encourage a, a world view that would get conservative politicians elected and speak about them as though their their positions are reasonable on these issues and that they they deserve to be in parliament representing Victorians, where in a lot of cases they they are well and truly on the fringe. They well and truly do not represent um, you know even half of the electorate, let alone the the majority of the electorate, and they deserve to be forgotten and ignored rather than amplified in mainstream media. So. I think it's I think it's been deliberate and I think it's been ongoing. The immediate aftermath of the election, the likes of Peter Credlin and Rowan Dean and Andrew Bolt are out there in the media going, "Yeah, look, you know, we we got it wrong because we're trying to appeal to the lefties. You know, like what we need to be doing is 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 marching even further to the extremes on these positions." What's left? you know, will be indistinguishable from Family First or the Red Niles Christian Family Values Party or whatever the name of it was. That's That seems to be where they're being dragged and it's like it's showing in the vote.
0: Yeah, and like you expect that from the Murdoch papers, so the Herald Sun in Melbourne, could barely be called a newspaper anymore. It is literally the, you know, well, somebody, someone much smarter than me put forward the argument that it's, it's not so much that the Murdoch papers are the propaganda arm of the Liberal Party, more so that the Liberal Party has become the political arm of the Murdoch empire. Was that you? Oh, so there you go, someone much smarter than me. <laughs>
1: Thank you for that. Yes, very kind words. Thank you. <laughs>
0: This is my problem. I read too widely and do not. I, I do not keep a big bibliography of, of uh, who I've been reading. But what, what was, I think, Yeah, as someone outside Victoria, what was sort of frustrating and a bit alarming to me was watching The Age and even the ABC pick up on these things and, and, and pick up on this narrative and push this narrative that this was an increasingly broad and narrowing election and Daniel Andrews is under pressure and all this sort of thing. And then the astonishment on all of the pundits' faces on election night when he very casually strolled to a large majority victory. Everyone seemed fairly comfortable that Labour would win, but this narrative of, well, he might end up in a minority government. On the night, it wasn't even a it wasn't it was just not a thing. And, and when I found Andy t-
1: Green called it at like eight PM. He was ready to put his pajamas on and go to bed. No, <laughs> it was well and truly. Yeah, uh, I, I can't really, but yeah, like it's it's done.
0: And look, this is classic Murdochian um, sort of stuff. But the, I found hilarious, you know, Andrew Bolt's um, Sunday morning thought bubble was well, Daniel Andrews now has has no choice but to resign before you know ha- having having won this crushing victory, he should resign before stuff catches up to him. It was like, huh? Like, it was it was that as sort of wacky and it'll be lonely? It was that as as did that seem as weird to you as it does to those of us outside of Victoria? Because I was, it was getting to this stage. I was watching the, the results unfold and going, what is going on with the Victorian media? Because it's bizarre.
2: So uh, there's a few interesting things going through my mind. Uh, the first one is I think that there have been enough elections in the last, let's go the last four years, because I will, I can go back to the last state election that were that was surprising. We had the WA election that was surprising. We had a Scott Morrison win in there that was somewhat traumatic. So we've had some very surprising election results. And as a Victorian, I was actually watching Hamilton the Musical for I won't name how many times I've seen it, but um, <laughs> I was watching Hamilton the Musical on Saturday night and I we bought tickets for Saturday night because I did not want to sit and watch the election. And this is from a political junkie who loves ele- mm. election nights but if the result was not going to be as I had hoped it would be and if it was, then I did not want to sit there and watch it. I have sat there and watched uh, an election <laughs> night like that before and I don't ever want to do that again. So I needed a really good distraction and, and make sure that I would enjoy the night. And if it wasn't, if it was kind of an easy win, which is exactly what it was, then I didn't need to sit and watch there watch it either because I could actually do something more fun and then catch up on it the next day, which I did so there's that right there's this kind of surprising patchwork of different results that we have had that have made it really hard to be confident in the polling to be confident in what's actually going to happen so while I agree with you Steve I think from a Murdoch Press perspective there's absolutely a really clear agenda going on there but Alana you're spot on as well that we had the age and the ABC also really quite concerned about what the result would be and with plenty of agitation of you know or will they just get in what will it really look like and you know so i think it's there is this kind of tension around what what's really going to happen and what do we really know and the other bit that has happened right in the last uh, well i don't know what the last decade but it kind of just keeps speeding up is social media and mm-hmm. the the different echo chambers that we all sit within and so whatever echo chamber you are in you are continually thinking about or fed stuff that is feeding that echo chamber and that is really unsettling as well because you then kind of go okay well what am I missing am I really getting in any way a clear picture and the reality that we have is all of those journalists are in their echo chambers as well they are not somehow sitting outside of that and Seeing a beautiful big picture and a clear picture, it's bullshit. They're absolutely sitting in echo chambers too.
1: I did a a, a bit of a sort of whip around the different uh, election coverages on Saturday night. So I spent a few minutes watching the coverage on Sky and I spent a few minutes watching it on the ABC, Channel 7, Channel 9, just to see how they were talking about the results. If I just look at what the sky news panel was talking about and sky news had people like jeff kennett and peter credlin also Stephen uh steven brax who was really having a fun night i've got to say Stephen brax was very much enjoying himself jeff kennett not so much peter, <laughs> peter credlin not at all but what was interesting is what they were talking about was all negative all negative as far as labor was concerned signs of a collapsing vote look at you know how well the greens are doing over here look at how this independence is doing over here look at this swing against them in this seat you know etc cetera, etc cetera not mentioning at all the fact that they were well and truly on their way to reforming government with a you know like a sizable majority again and and really weren't being challenged in any kind of meaningful way at all the the, the other channels were more or less neutral the abc was the most neutral of them I watched five minutes of Channel Nine and it was almost all lifestyle type stuff. Goodness. Special interest piece about the fact that the guy from Strictly Ballroom ran for politics, you did know, he ran win? ran for the election. He has actually won. So Paul Mercurio ah, won. Go Scott was, Hastings. What was, what was super interesting? So yeah, so Paul Mercurio, the a, an Australian icon, star of Strictly Ballroom, dancer, actor, performer, stood for the seat of Hastings and he did it, he said, because he he, he felt passionately about the uh standing up for the needs of the local community. People had spoken to him about maybe being a representative. He felt that he had the requisite communication skills and that he would work on the politics. He ran as a Labour representative. And the the guy from Channel 9, I think it was, that I saw interviewing him couldn't get past the fact that he was a dancer in Strictly Ballroom, Uh, like really, really couldn't get past that fact. Said to him, why are you running as an ALP candidate? And he said, I I wouldn't have had the career I had if it weren't for the unions. The performing arts are a strong union sector. Our our wages and our rights, the protections that we have are hard fought as a result of the performing arts unions. And so, like, for me, I've been a member of the unions since I first started performing. So, like, it was natural for me to stand as a Labor candidate. Like, I I, I literally am from the trade union movement. And, and that was – it was – interesting and in that like here's a guy who is high profile running for labor and yet the disconnect with the people interviewing him who couldn't see past the sparkly uniform that he danced in an, in strictly ballroom couldn't take him seriously and, and couldn't actually make the connection that actually there's going to be more there than just a familiar face but it spoke to the disconnect that you see where We've got a narrative going in and we're going to run with that. And on Sky News, it was a very negative anti-Dan, anti-Labor narrative, and they just couldn't break past it. As I say, the ABC was was pretty reasonable in in their coverage. Can
0: I just read to you a, a couple of things? Like Dave Milner, who is actually a former video games journalist, but is now writing for the The Shot, which is this serious news website from the people who bring us The Chaser, which... is is a bit of a a mind-blowing thing all by itself. He has written the most brilliant article about the Victorian election in which he he states straight up he's going to be – unrelentically obnoxious about the fact that he, yeah, he's the only journalist in Victoria who correctly predicted the election outcome. But just on the the media coverage, he says uh, one section of the media would, would huff the farts of another section before unleashing its own noxious brew, a reconcentrated dose of this particular brand of disconnection from reality. Dan was in trouble, Matt was on the charge, and thus was born an Ouroboros of regurgitated delusion, which I think sums up the way the media. <laughs> approach the Victorian election, but he actually quotes in this article, he quotes his own article from the week before in the lead up to the election and uh, I'll just read this section too, because this is this is actually his prediction of the election, uh, which was uh, this will no doubt be a profoundly confusing experience for readers of the Herald Sun, masochistic individuals who have spent the last three years battered over the head with the message that the state is in the thrall of a despot, dictator Dan's authoritarian iron fist clag- clad in sportswear fleece, clasping the life out of Victorian democracy. That they will be able to vote at all might be a shock. That Daniel Andrews will win relatively comfortably will shatter at least a portion of their warped reality. It doesn't pay to make predictions in this profession. The reward for being right is non-existent and you just look like a douche or worse, Peter van Onselen, if you're wrong. But Daniel Andrews being Victorian Premier on November 27th, is about as sure a thing as politics allows.
1: Oh, that's beautiful.
0: It's great, isn't it? And... um, I got, at this rate, I could read you the whole article. But there's one more piece. This is the actual, the original section that I wanted to read to you. And um, as I've been be. trolling through, uh, yes, as I've been trolling through trying to find it, I found these other two sections that were very, very apt of, of what we're talking about. So, so esteemed media colleagues, how did I work this out when the rest of you got this so wrong? To take you inside of the little trade craft, I looked at polling data and betting odds that uniformly said this extremely obvious thing was going to happen. I then observed Victorian politics, spoke to Victorians, and just generally was a Victorian. On top of that, I discounted the predictions of the angriest and least vaccinated sections of the citizenry. I think this is where you guys went wrong, applied my analysis to the odds of the obvious thing happening, and decided that, yes, it was obvious the obvious thing would happen, obviously. So I, I will put, um, uh, I'll put both of those articles into the show notes for anyone who, who's not already reading Dave Milner and the shop, because if you're not, you should be. Because it's brilliant. The the media disconnect has just been absolutely bizarre. And I really feel like it has been driven by this deeply personal dislike of Dan Andrews that a number of sort of high profile members of the media in Victoria seem to have developed over the last couple of years, particularly during that period of the Victorian lockdowns where he was fronting up to the media every day and answering every single question until there were no more questions left to be answered Um, and just not taking shit from the media. And I feel like that this narrative of Daniel Andrews being controversial and divisive, and this pseudo-authoritarian thing, to me seems to be absolutely a um, a media beat because I, I know the eastern states media lose their shit over Mark McGowan quite a bit as well.
2: I, I was just going to say, I think it the bit that in all of this has troubled me, and I think uh, I think we talked about this last time I was on as well, but is the lack of opposition. So the lack of opposition mm. in any parliamentary system is really problematic. A lack of opposition it just means that it is, it, it's actually easier to push the line about Dictator Dan, right, when we don't have a functioning opposition that is holding the government to account and asking decent questions rather than going stupid fear campaign stuff. So uh, the thing that really yeah. troubles me is... Um, as much as I am loving the community independent movement, and I want to see more of it, and I want to see, I want to see the Democrats back clearly, mm. but I want to see something that happens by way of what the opposition then looks like in
0: um, and Victoria and in WA as well for mm. improving our democracy. You have just reminded me that that one of the things that I have found frustrating with the coverage of the Victorian election is this. This dictator Dan narrative that both the, the opposition and the media sort of cooked up meant that stuff that Dan genuinely should be held to account for got overlooked, and I found that really baffling and and, and really confusing because they're so busy creating what is basically a fiction, they letting genuine stuff slide and. That, to me, is really bizarre. So that, to me, like, it, you know, sure, the, the opposition squibbing it, fair enough. I mean, look, they were led by Matthew Guy, possibly the most forgettable person in the in the Victorian Liberal Party. But the media, because they always carry on about how it's their job to hold power to account and all this sort of shit, right mm. up until it doesn't fit their narrative, which is what we saw in the Victorian election. So Victorians, I think, were badly let down, not just by the the, the absence of a of a, functional opposition uh, in their state but severely let down by all of the media in their state whether it be okay the Murdoch press yeah you know we kind of accept the fact that they had vacated they vacated the field decades ago but the ABC and the age in particular should know better and should do better and they didn't as Dave Milner so poetically described they all just started (laughs) huffing their own farts as you put it and I agree completely on that I
2: feel like The ABC and The Age have often perhaps seemingly tried to balance uh, things somehow to their own detriment because they then become just as frustrating and just as ridiculous in um, the lines that they push that were in support of Dan, which just, like it just keeps then reverberating, right? We then Mm -hmm. just keep getting this ridiculous divide as opposed to let's actually have some serious journalism (laughs) around the real conversations yeah that is a broad statement so there there were some good journalistic moments in there but on the whole it was it looked, yeah incredibly incredibly frustrating
0: cuz the 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 age i think put forward a uh, i think it was like the the heralds not the the heralds view well done alana the age's view <laughs> on on uh, on the election and they sort of put forward this editorial that andrews doesn't deserve to be returned to power but matthew guy didn't deserve to be to form government, and that they kind of in a, indirectly argued that the best result would actually be a minority government with independence sort of holding the balance of power in the lower house. And I remember Tim Dunlop shared that article on Twitter and said, you know, if they'd actually just come out and made that argument, this would have been a much more credible piece of writing. But they kind of came to it indirectly and just went, oh, well, neither of them deserve to win, so, you know. And it's like, why even publish it? Why, if, if you're going to vacate the field to that level, why even bother turning up?
1: Matthew Guy comes across in an interview as someone who was told at the last minute that they needed to attend and isn't entirely sure what they're there for. Every time, every time he gets asked questions that you should simply expect that you're going to get asked and he really feels like the, not even the understudy, but just some guy who was wearing a, a decent jacket that they pulled off the street and said, Listen, can you go and answer some questions for us? Mm. Uh, there'll be some journalists, they'll ask you some questions, do your best, don't make any promises. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, just be polite. But yeah, if if you could go and do that, because we otherwise have nobody. <laughs>
0: Here's today's talking points. Try try and but, stick to them.
1: Like honestly, if they just put the empty jacket on a chair and directed questions at that, the responses would have been more sensible and more on point in a lot of cases.
2: It's been pretty interesting. There was a, I think it was on the ABC uh, today, there was, you know, the clip of the four people that were going for the leadership of the Liberal Party in Victoria. Victoria. And are we the, the in any way surprised? diversity tickets, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, four <laughs> white men and... In fact, I kind of have no words. It's not surprising, of course, again, because of all of the things that we've talked about, but it just, it really, I don't understand what it will take for the party to recognise that it needs to actually do something
1: different. There's a part of me that is, is digging back into my university days studying network effects and platforms And how, you know, how networks collapse and how platforms collapse in in the technology space. And I don't think, I think the Liberal Party is in critical decline and I don't think they're coming back. I think we're going to see a repeat of the Victorian state election in New South Wales. I think New South Wales Liberals are going to lose a lot of seats. There is a a, a great deal of disaffection for them, a lot of a lot of ill will uh, against the way that they're they're treating the state and, and how it feels. But I, I just see this collapse of support and the sort of diehard support that bolsters a party simply being eroded. And this drift to those extreme edges on policy issues, there is no critical mass of support there. Like we're literally talking about extreme views and there aren't many people out there holding them. So the more they shift away from more moderate positions on things, more nuanced positions, more informed positions on things, the more that support will collapse and it won't be that they lose a seat or two that they might have hoped to, to hold, it will be like WA where they, it simply collapses and they can't win anything or they barely win anything and they could come to parliament on a tandem bike and, you know, like that's, that's, that's the future of the Liberal Party as it stands right now mm-hmm. that I can see and moderates the sort of people who would tag themselves as moderates and, and there have been good ones. And we were we were commenting on Bridget Archer via text earlier in the week, Elena, that she doesn't belong in the Liberal Party of today, especially where the Liberal Party's going. The Liberal Party that she belongs to probably hasn't existed for 10 years and mm. certainly won't exist at all, other than in, in history books in five years' time. There won't yeah. be a connection to the party that really represents her and that and that she is a part of. Where will people like her go? Where will people who who elect her, who will they vote for? And I think like in the in the conservative side of the moderate middle and the center of Australian politics, Labour on on one side of that, you know, Labour capital divide, and on the other side of it is a gaping void. Mm. where there, there really isn't anybody.
0: I, and it's just dawned on me, and my profound apologies to South Australia, but the pattern is not just federal or WA Federal Victoria, it's WA Federal South Australia Victoria where the Liberal Party has collapsed. And I have joked with the, the South Australian division that because they were sort of in the centre of the country, everyone just forgets about them, and I just mm. proved that my point. So <laughs> do it, my apologies to all of our South Sorry, Australian Roger. Men. There's two things that... Are, that, that, that uh, you've sort of triggered for me, Steve, is number one is, Leona, you were saying before that at the moment that the independent movement is very much focused on liberal held seats and, and you know people who 10 years ago would have been star candidates for the Liberal Party choosing to run as independents against the Liberal Party because they don't feel represented. And there is this narrative in the media that, oh, well, it's not happened to the Labor Party yet, but it'll be coming. And I think that's more sort of narrative bollocks that because the media came so late to realizing that the community independence movement was an actual movement and wasn't actually a thing, now they're sort of playing catch up and, and trying to adjust their narrative to actually fit this new political reality. And I suspect that where where the independence movement um, will go from will go over the next five years, will depend very much on how the Labour Party chooses to respond to it and how the Labour Party, you know, in WA South Australia, Victoria, federally, New South Wales should, you know, should the pattern repeat in New South Wales? It depends very much on how Labour chooses to govern. Because it might be that they end up becoming, and this will probably piss off a lot of Labour supporters, but it's it's possible that Labour might end up becoming the centre-right party in Australia. And for, you know the centre-left side of the fence gets taken up by independents, hopefully the Democrats, Greens will still be sort of the, further the to Greens, left. Yeah. You know, the left. The Greens, et yeah. the Greens, yeah. Because we were talking about this at the WA um, state executive meeting last night where immediately after the WA state election, uh, one of our young Democrats was sort of saying, you guys only, like, you know, if we can get you registered in WA and you can test the 2025 election. You only need to win five seats to become the opposition. And I at the time I laughed. <laughs> But then it just, re- and, and since then I've just gone. I love that he's not wrong. Yeah. Yep, he's not, he's wrong. not wrong. <laughs> the McGowan government will, yeah, you know, the McGowan tide will recede, but that doesn't mean that the Liberals, A, will be able to no. regroup and, and, and regain some of the seats that they lost, no. or that yep. they deserve to. And, and, and there is and my an opportunity. Contention,
1: my contention is that they won't. No, my, con- my contention is that they simply won't. I think, you know, uh, Leone, you mentioned very early on the strength of the nationals' vote in Victoria and how well they went. Similarly, in WA, it was still a good showing. At the federal election, it was still a good showing. I think Queensland is where they're most vulnerable, um, and I also think Queensland is where they are most strongly aligned with mining interests. And the exact opposite is true in Victoria. Victoria yeah. is where they are most strongly aligned with farming interests, and those farming interests align with care for the environment and care for um, you know climate. So, like I, I, I think there's something there. But for the Liberal Party, I, I don't think they're coming back. Which means there's a space, mm. there's an there's an opening, there's a gap in the political landscape for someone.
0: And what's interesting is, is there's talk in Victoria of them actually stepping away from the coalition. Do you think that's actually a possibility, Ligoni? I I think it... No,
2: I think that... <laughs> I don't think they're there yet. <laughs> um, I think it will be a serious conversation that they've been having. The fact that they're having the conversation, I think, is in of itself quite remarkable. Thank goodness they are, given the results. But uh, no, I don't think that they'll mm. be splitting. Again, as I said earlier, the signposts of who takes on the leadership and what the Liberal Party actually want to then start doing and whether they're then going to perhaps look like they might be a little bit more competitive. That to me is is the thing that if I was in the NATS I'd be watching and externally I'm certainly watching as well.
0: Yeah, because I mean so far there's been absolutely no indication in either WA South Australia or federally of the Liberal Party taking heed of any of the lessons that they need to have learned from the repeated drubbings that they have received in elections.
1: Exactly right.
0: And Victoria seems to be holding firm to that pattern as well. <laughs> so, but, um, Leonie, you mentioned John Pesuto at the start of the pod. And now he, from, from again, my very limited non-Victorian understanding, and I'm hoping that you can, you can illuminate me on this, he does appear to be sort of the great hope of the not, right side of the party like he, he's actually probably one of the few moderates left standing is that correct well he's he's just
2: gotten back in so so yes you are uh, well that's my take as well so largely correct um if i'm correct <laughs> as well um but i i think of poshuto john poshuto the night of um the election four years ago was the most candid of the liberal Uh, party representatives that I saw in the media at the time around where they had gone wrong
0: Mm.
2: and that to me was incredibly refreshing at the time and gave me hope even though he had lost his seat gave me hope of what they might do now that didn't come to pass because we had four years of ridiculousness with the Liberal Party my hope is in him just getting back in that he can then inject some of his uh, more moderate views into the party and I think that the fact that there are Liberal Party people that have not been elected and they need to really think about why that might be so and who they put up and how they've actually gone as a result um, and where the ALP have made gains and where they have actually yeah the fact that John Paschetto is back in to me is is a little bit of um, a little bit of hope for the Liberal Party in my Mm. mind but um, he's got a big job ahead of him if he's going to turn anything around there
0: because okay, so that's really fascinating so he lost his seat in the 2018 election and has only just now been returned to parliament yeah so Never he mind. wasn't in there for oh. the last four years yeah i I th- oh, see there out- so I thought that he had he'd sort of been in parliament and, and and had been returned and that that Hawthorne was
2: oh god see I'm learning new things No, when we talked about Matthew guy kind of being there, uh, guy <laughs> who's who's the one guy that we can kind of bring in and put a jacket on um
0: there's a reason because there was michael o'brien i think got the stopgap in between the, the two you know the, the first and second comings of of matthew guy and i read somewhere that and i, and I don't understand i don't know how moderate michael uh, michael o'brien was but it seems that they sort of spent a couple of years sort of tearing him down and then replaced him with matthew guy is that correct
2: so Michael O'Brien was, this is my, this is this is all I need to think about when I think about
0: Michael O'Brien or all I do think about is him wearing
2: a Trumpian cap, a red cap. Yes. Oh, yes. Make Victoria right. great again, I think was the line. Uh, it possibly right. actually had something anti-Dan on it because he was oh, no. vehemently anti-Dan in the middle of lockdowns. So yeah.
0: Right.
2: Michael O'Brien carried the party through a period of time where it was only Fear and frustration and ridiculousness that was coming out of the party. Um, weirdly, somehow, when he uh, lost the leadership and Matthew Guy came in, um, it, it actually, in my mind at least, it actually quietened down a little bit on the fear and
1: craziness. That <laughs> Guy's, Guy's the reasonable one.
2: <laughs> yeah, not so much. It just it was just not quite as crazy. <laughs> And, and look, I think uh, in my mind, if we were realistic about the the last election rather than even I was, you know, sitting there going, oh, what's really going to happen. If we were realistic, you would put someone like Matthew Guy in, right? Because he lost last time. They're going to lose again. You know, mm-hmm. who do we really have? And let's just get through this one. And, and, and they clearly assumed that they would make more gains than they did. And then they would reassess and bring somebody
0: else in as later yeah yeah. okay because what I found and this is where my perception of um, it sort of being a downside 2.0 came from in that the 2018 election w- was a genuine sort of landslide victory for to Dan Andrews and and, and the, the, the Labour Party sort of across the board in Victoria like yes their primary vote dropped but to me, it seemed like it was coming off a very high result anyway, so it was like a natural sort of pulling back a little bit because it was only, what, 6% or whatever. What I also found interesting is that there were seats that they took in 2018 that they have never held before, which I think is Box Hill and a couple of others, and they retained those in this election as well, which I found quite fascinating. So, And, yes, they they, they sort of lost a few in the sort of the western suburbs of Victoria that were hardest hit by the lockdowns and and. Obviously, the the anti-Dan sentiment was highest there, but in eastern Victoria, they held on to gains that they made in 2018 that they reasonably should not have been expected to hold on to.
2: Yeah, so there has been, and this again goes to the patchwork because there's, um, you know, like Preston is a really interesting seat to look at. We've got an independent there. They're still counting votes, I think, there, but massive swing against the ALP there towards an independent. Really, Um. again, really local campaign by a really embedded independent, um, community independent. So Um, patchworky. But I think there's, you know, this sense of the last three years, there are fringe areas where it was, um, you know, the anti-Dictator Dan stuff or anti-Dan, Dictator Dan stuff. Um, There were electorates that did it really tough and wanted something different and have seemingly seen that in the Liberal Party albeit again, I'm not in a big way. Like that's, I'm not not sure that's really the the story there either, actually. But there's also then this just, you know, he got stuff done. He and his team, Mm. let's put the pandemic aside for a moment. They have been a government of action. I have said for a number of years now, they're the party of, they just get shit done because they have. They've got a lot of shit done in even in really shitty circumstances. So, so with a lot of electorates, it was, you know, and, and in fact, th- this is the other thing, right? I, this is probably reveals way too much about how I think about who I'm voting for. But to me, in my electorate, it was a very easy no-no. I did not want Matthew Guy. I did not want a, a leadership approach by Matthew Guy and what he had shown us in terms of lack of leadership. I also didn't want a local member who was very conservative from a religious perspective. It, it was a really simple, easy no-no. There have been times in the last period of time, such as when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, where to me there was, I had a yes-no. So mm-hmm. I wanted Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister at the time. I did not want my local member, who was a Liberal Party at conservative, I did not want him locally. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was a yes-no, right? So there's complexity and, and challenge in this around who the local member is, if you are interested in politics, and who the leader is. And I think that's for those of us who kind of take a little bit more interest and read a little bit more. For mm. everybody else, it's the, well, what do I really know? There's this Matthew Guy who, who is forgettable, as <laughs> you said, Alana, who's not, not showing any leadership and is only only really saying fear, 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 and Dan, this is ridiculous, blah, 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 or there's Dan who's getting shit done and actually navigated through a horrendous period of time. You know what's the safer bet? And I think for I, I think the result pretty much says for you know in an easy way, having said it was a patchwork. At the easy line is
0: it's just it's the safe bet. He's the safe mm. bet, he and his government just continue on. I think you raise a really, really good point of the contrast between fearmongering and the hysteria over dictator Dan and, and you know, the pandemic and everything else. But contrast that against the simple fact that uh, I think hundreds of level crossings were removed in Victoria, and there were you know, other other shit got done, as you say. And who has made a material impact on people's lives, you know, for good or ill? That would be Dan Andrews and and, and the Liberals, from 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 what I could see from outside the state didn't even have a clear sort of policy narrative to put to the people it was just it just seemed to be a mishmash
2: it was it was pretty yeah it was pretty crappy actually it was fix the health system but we're gonna can all of these projects in order to fix the health system I think right. in, in a nutshell that seemed to be their approach and and auntie Dan you don't want him you want us without really selling who the US
1: was in any way the whole point of selling off the sewage treatment system was to improve health care <laughs> those are two dots I did not connect okay no. Fair enough.
0: all right so Leonie final thoughts before I let you go well look
2: I think there is a role for the Australian Democrats in all of this which is to keep the bastards honest from the outside at the moment we're not in Parliament and we certainly want to be, and that is certainly the goal, but there is more that needs to be done from the outside at the moment around improving our democracy and keeping the bastards honest. And I don't have an opposition in Victoria that is going to be able to do that. I don't have faith that the uh, media are going to do that. That to me is the gig at the moment for the Australian Democrats, and I think we are we are up for that challenge.
0: Fantastic. So you can spend the next four years working to become the uh, the better opposition for Victoria. That's a worthy goal. Yeah, we might need more
2: than five seats to to be the
0: opposition (laughs) in Victoria. Sure. You know, stretch goals and all that. Yeah. yeah, For our our Victorian listeners, get onto that, join the party. You'll be able to work with Leonie uh, and and volunteer with Leonie if that's your thing. Yeah, like if you want a functional opposition in Victoria, this is where it starts. Yeah, call out to uh, all of our Victorian
2: listeners. Thanks, Alana. And, um, yeah, be part of the change that you want to see in your system, and it requires us to to step up um, as individuals and do our bit, rather than stand back and get frustrated with what's actually happening. So come and join
0: us; it's fun to be had. Fantastic! Thank you, Leonie. That was fascinating. There was yeah, so many insights that, as an outsider to Victoria, I was completely oblivious to. So it's uh, it was a great chat, and I hope our, our non-Victorian listeners found it as interesting as I did. At the time of recording, the results hadn't quite been finalised as there were a couple of seats still on a knife edge. But I can now confirm that contrary to the narrative put forward by the mainstream media, the Andrews government was not only returned with a majority, they increased their representation on the dance slide of 2018 by one seat, securing 56 lower house seats. They needed 45 seats to reform government. What was very interesting to me, and formed part of my view that this was a landslide 2.0, was that while there was a reshuffling of the seats that Labour holds, the number of seats they hold actually increased, admittedly only by one. But that was coming off a huge win in 2018. You would expect, particularly after the last three years, and particularly if the media narrative of Dan Andrews being divisive was correct, that the huge margin they attained in 2018 might have shrunk a bit. That's normally how election cycles run. So increasing the number of seats they hold, even by one, is quite significant. The next four years in Victorian politics are going to be fascinating. As predicted by Leone, John Pesudo not only regained his seat, he was also elected leader of the Liberal Party and therefore opposition leader. I'm not sure who the Victorian Liberals would have turned to if Pesudo hadn't been returned to Parliament, but it does seem to be a good start by them in clearing the the debris of the second coming of Matthew Guy. Whether or not Pesudo is given the time and space needed to reform his party and lead it out of the wilderness, or if the Liberals are in a permanent decline, remains to be seen and will depend very much on whether the Victorian Liberals are capable of heeding the lessons Victoria has conveyed to them. If the pattern established federally, and in WA and and South Australia, holds in Victoria, then the answer to that question will likely be the Simpsons meme of Principal Skinner asking himself if he's out of touch and then concluding no, it's the children who are wrong, which doesn't bode well for New South Wales when they head to the polls in March 2023. We talked about the sense of relief that the country seemed to feel in our post-federal election up episode, But watching the decline of the Liberal Party has made clear that removing Scott Morrison from power and preventing his state counterparts from attaining power isn't the end of the journey for Australia. In fact, if the Liberal Party collapses completely over the next decade, we'll likely look back at the elections held in 2021 and 2022 as the beginning of a new cycle in Australian political history – and possibly a tectonic shift in how we see ourselves as a people and how we govern ourselves. And if that's the case, then our work as a nation has barely begun. Now is the time to engage even more strongly with your democracy. We can't allow the vanquishing of the Morrison era to lull us into into becoming complacent and disengaged. But that, dearest listeners, is a discussion for a future episode. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats. And you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.